We're moving along in James. There should be some Bibles around you if you want to swipe open your phone. We're in the book of James. We're in chapter 3. And today we're looking at verses 13 through 18. So we're in this series and we're calling it The Awakening. And what James keeps doing is he's sending an electric shock that wakes up our sleepy hearts so that our, we, we, our eyes will open and we will take a gasp of the air that we have always longed to breathe, this air from heaven that has come down to the earth because God himself, Christ, has cracked open the shell between heaven and earth and he has come in. That's what James is trying to get us to see. And today, what we see is that by him cracking open this shell, that the wisdom from above, wisdom from God, begins to start leaking in. That's what today's about, wisdom. And we all want wisdom. To have wisdom is to know how life works. To have a life well lived, you have to have wisdom. When you see success in life, wisdom bears its mark. When you see a life well lived, wisdom's signature is all over the place. Football team wins the Super Bowl, wisdom is there. When a business is running successfully, business wisdom is there in that business. When a parent raises up a smart and loving child, wisdom is there. If you want a healthy marriage, you need wisdom. Wisdom does not, however, guarantee success in life, but you can't have success in life without wisdom. And wisdom offers you practicality. And there's a certain type of wisdom that's available to all the earth. It's in the way that God has woven things together. But as soon as you arrive at that wisdom, what you begin to find is that wisdom is saying there's still something left. There's something deeper still that you have not reached down into. At its core, wisdom says practicality is nice, but it's, it's just okay. What you really need, wisdom says, is a person. You need the one who has cracked open the shell between heaven and earth and has come in. He himself is wisdom, and he is what you really need in life. He is the wellspring of wisdom, and you must drink from him deeply. That's what James wants us to see today, and that's what we're going to go do. So to have wisdom is to take the road to God. But it's also to realize that God has taken the road to you, and he's taken a narrow road to you, and he has had the life squeezed out of him. And as that has happened to him, he has given us life, and he's had wisdom squeezed out of him, but then he's given us that wisdom. So, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. All right, so this is what James does. He starts out 
And he says, who here is wise among you? And he's inviting whoever of you who are wise to stand up. And then as soon as you stand up, he says, you fool, sit back down. We already know who is wise based off of the quality of their life, based off of the life that they are living. We look at their character and we can see that they are wise. The wise carry themselves in such a way where, and and they speak in such a way that has a confident humility. Their words bring both healing balm, yet they ignite change. Their presence brings both strength and tenderness. They are like a warrior for justice, yet at the same time, you could crawl up into their gracious arms. Success does not go to their head, and failure doesn't go to their heart. They're a rock in a world that is chaotic. And when something gets a little too orderly, they push out and risk into the next thing to bring order into that next risk, making us a little bit uncomfortable themselves, but pushing us on to change. They are like a rock in chaotic waters, yet also like a leaf that floats upon the airs of change. They can do both at the same time. They know when each one needs to be done. They are conservative when it's time to be conservative, and they are progressive when it's time to be progressive. And their views are not dictated by the culture that they are in, but they are like a steady old tree that stands the test of time. And they look as the world around them continues to change, but they remain solid, unmovable, because they have been changed over time in Christ and grown in Christ. And yet, while they are unmovable, it is because of the growth that they've experienced. And they change in Christ... Yet, they're unchanging in truth. Yet, always discovering a new truth in a new way that is deeper and more exciting. So, who is wise among you? And who wants to be wise? And if you want to be wise, James is saying the first thing you need to do is realize that you keep falling for a false wisdom. Now notice, it's a false wisdom. There is some wisdom to it. This is our second point, false wisdom. And by the way, I read a quote this week. I want to read it to you. Your future self will always say to your present self, see your, your future self will always see your present self as foolish and immature. And that means that you are currently a fool. So James tells us that there are three types of false wisdom. And he calls them false wisdom because there is some wisdom to it. But there's only a little bit of wisdom. And the problem with this false wisdom is it satisfies you enough. It leaves you saying, okay, I have arrived. All the while, what you don't realize is you are, it's like you're playing in a puddle of mud when true wisdom is over the hill and there's an ocean before you. False wisdom might help you out a bit. But that becomes problematic because it leaves you satisfied with what you've discovered. And it will leave you hearing words about God, but never bring you right to Him. So if you're someone who has gone from false wisdom to true wisdom, it's like for a year you've been walking around with scratched glasses. And finally you found a fresh pair and you put them on and you say, I have been seeing blindly this whole time. I have not been seeing clearly. So when James talks about these false wisdoms, he says there are three of them. And here's what we're going to do from here. 
James is going to tell us what false wisdom is, the fruit of it, and then the results in your life for it. And then he's going to look at true wisdom, and he's going to say, what's true wisdom? What is the fruit it produces in your life? And then what is the end result? So, of this false wisdom, there's three of them. And the first one is earthly wisdom. And earthly wisdom, it stops within the shell of this earth. Earthly wisdom shuts God out. Its limit is what you can learn here in this earth with the here and the now. But true wisdom is eternal and it's everlasting and it reaches beyond what we can experience here on this earth. So, want to know if you've fallen for this worldly false wisdom, this earthly false wisdom? Here's how you know. Have you brought God into absolutely every area and aspect of your life. And if you have not, then you are falling for this earthly wisdom that compartmentalizes God, that says, I'm going to live on Monday through Saturday life, and then I'm going to have my Sunday life for God. And I'm going to keep God out of my family, or I'm going to keep God out of my workplace. Earthly wisdom says, fine, take God, but don't talk to me about him. And don't bring the ethics of God into the workplace. And that is earthly wisdom. It pushes God out. That's the first type. Second type of false wisdom is unspiritual. And this is about not trusting God. You never get beyond you. You trust in yourself. You look at the world around you and you say, I got to work hard. I got to put in a good effort. I got to make this happen. You say, well, that sounds good. That sounds right. Except the problem is that's all you arrive at is you. It's up to you. There's no mercy from God. There's no grace from God. Yet the premise of Christianity is that we need him. That there's no amount of good things that we can do to earn this acceptance from him. We need simply grace and mercy. Yet false wisdom pushes out mercy and grace. And then the last false wisdom is demonic. This is the unseen force that pulls you away from God and keeps you rooted here in the earthly wisdom, in the worldly wisdom, into this wisdom that is from below. So Peter falls into this. So there's a place where Jesus just tells Peter, hey Peter, I'm going to die on the cross for the sins of the world, essentially. And Peter says, don't do it. And then Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Now that's pretty extreme. What's Jesus getting at? Well, Peter is rooted in this earthly wisdom. He's being held down by this force that says this is a bad idea. When in reality, the cross is the very instrument through which God would bring his kingdom into the earth. God always is working in a way that seems foolish to us. And that's how you know you found the deep wisdom. Here's how God works. He dies to create life. He comes down in order to lift up. He becomes poor in order to make us rich in Christ. He's rejected so that we could be accepted. He becomes an outcast and an orphan to make us part of the family. So God's wisdom is opposite of the way we work. It flips everything around. All right, so then you take, that's what false wisdom is. Now, what's the fruit of false wisdom? Well, 
It says false wisdom produces bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Now, let's take these words. Selfish ambition. What is selfish ambition? Well, you're ambitious about what? You in the kingdom that you're building. You're consumed with it. It's everything that you're thinking about. It's about you. So what you begin to do is, well, here's what we do in our area. In this area of the world, we pursue comfort. We're ambitious for it. We fight for it. We look around at the Joneses and we see what they've been doing in their life. And we look at everybody following after that pattern and we say, well, everybody's doing this, so I better do it because that must be the wisest thing to do. And so we begin to try to create this comfortable life for us. This life where we have the house that we want and the car that we want and we have just the white picket fence and everything just looks so good in our life. And man, we're comfortable and we chase it. In fact, we make ourselves so discomfortable chasing after this comfort because we become so obsessed about it thinking that finally one day we're going to arrive at this comfortable life. And then guess what happens? You're chasing it with all your might. These are good things that you make ultimate things. And when you pursue something that is good and you make it your everything, and then you see somebody else in your life who's getting more of that than you want, that you getting more of it than you, all of a sudden, your life becomes this life of bitter jealousy. And you look around at the people who have all the things that you want and you hate them for it. So what do you do? You work harder. You fight more to get the life that you want to live, this comfortable life. If only you could get this and if only you could get that. And then you find yourself hating to look on social media because you see all these people with this rosy life that you've been chasing and you're not getting it. And you start hating them. And if you are honest, you will tell yourself that you do it. Because we all do. And the root cause of all this is that you're obsessed about building your own kingdom. You're ambitious for it. And you can't keep this up because it's destroying you. And it will destroy your family, it will destroy your friendships, and it will destroy your soul because you're chasing after something you aren't meant to chase after. And then the result of all this is it produces disorder in your life Things are not ordered the way they're meant to be ordered because you are so ambitious about building your kingdom. And then it leads to all this vile practice in your life. Now, I, wanna, I want you to think about it this way. So sometimes I meet with people and, and essentially what they tell me is the church is irrelevant. And they're right depending on the church if the church is not taking us to God's word, to taking us to the good news of who God is and what he's done for us and what it means for us, then the church is irrelevant. But if the church is rooted in God's word and is bringing us this good news, this wisdom that is upside down, and someone says it is, is it irre, it's irrelevant, here's what I, I'm beginning to believe is happening. That person is chasing after their own kingdom. And the church offers them nothing to help them do that. So they say, well, what good is the church? It's not helping me in my life. I have this kingdom that I'm trying to build, and it's not working. And, and, and you know what? Churches are caving into this. They're caving. They're becoming a place that says, let's tickle the ears of people 
and tell them the things that they want to hear as they're building their own kingdom so we can win them over to us. And then we'll take it from there. But the problem is, when you win people to that, that's what they're expecting for the rest of their time with you. And you know what, in the end, chasing after your kingdom, all it's going to do is leave you exhausted and bitter and jealous and it's going to produce disorder in your life. And it's going to leave you exhausted because you're trying to build a kingdom that is perishable, that could fade. At any moment, it could come down. Which means you are constantly building up walls to keep your kingdom safe. But it always has to get higher because there's, already, there's always some other threat that's coming. So, this starts small in your life, this small little selfish ambition, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the next thing you know, it is taking over your life, and there's disorder everywhere, and you didn't see it coming. And for many of you, it's been coming for a while, and you haven't seen it. And at some point, something's going to happen, and you're going to say, how did I not see this before? And it's because your eyes were so fixed on your own kingdom. So what you really need is some wisdom that comes from down, down to us from above, where the shell gets broken into, and then we discover this true wisdom. And you know what this wisdom will give you? Ah, peace and rest. Some of you have been just exhausted building up God's, building up your kingdom. And you keep hearing these words about how God gives you rest and peace and joy and you're not tasting any of it. Man, you're chasing your kingdom. And so, true wisdom says first, James says, the meekness of wisdom. Now, what does this word meekness mean? Well, the Greek people hated this word. They thought it was a disgusting word and they thought anybody that was meek was a disgusting display of a person. But Christians had a different view of meekness. In fact, Jesus calls himself self-meek. And here is what meekness is. Meekness means you are seeking to bring God's kingdom, not your own. So let's trace it out. So wisdom. Proverbs says, and we read this earlier in our call to worship, Proverbs says wisdom is the fear of God. Meaning you are in complete awe of God. You are in reverence of him. You come before him and you drop to your knees in humility. Because you see how amazing he is, and you taste it. You see his glory, beauty, and his worth, and it drops you to your knees. And then you begin to say, everybody needs to know about this God. And when you say that, you say, what do we do? We bring his kingdom. And so you start seeking to bring his kingdom, not your own. And that means that the wisest thing that you could ever do in your life is to seek to build God's kingdom. If there's, if there's one thing that you hear me say today, it's this. Build God's kingdom. It's the wisest thing you can do. So if you are in the middle of making a big decision in your life, and you're pouring over it. What do we do? What do we do? What are we supposed to do? What do I do next? What do I do next? Here's what you ask yourself. What would bring God's kingdom the most? There's your answer. I talk to people a lot who are ready to make a big decision in their life, and you could see it in their eyes, and, like, they're, and you can hear it in their words. They're just like, it's almost like they're just terrified they're going to make a wrong decision. Why are they so terrified? Because they know at any moment if they make a wrong decision, they will make their kingdom come, come, come crumbling to the ground, and it terrifies them. 
And it terrifies them because that's what they're building is their kingdom. But when you build God's kingdom, you're building something that's everlasting. It doesn't end. It keeps going. So, you get stressed making a decision when you're building your own kingdom. And then it's going to lead to bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. But seeking God's kingdom puts you at rest. It gives you the opposite of the selfish ambition and the bitter jealousy. It gives you peace. And this is bringing us now to the fruit of what happens when you seek the wisdom from God. When you seek building his kingdom. So here's what it says. It's going to give you a pure heart. And from that pure heart flows peace. Contentment, rest. And then gentleness. Open to reason. Full of mercy. Good fruits. Impartial. Sincere. So I want you to notice this. It starts with a pure heart and it ends with sincerity. Now why is that? Well, think about this. If you're building your own kingdom, that's what your heart's about. So you are selfish and ambitious about building your kingdom. So what do you do? Well, you do the opposite of being sincere because nobody, you don't want anybody to know how selfish you are. So you hide it. You don't let anybody see it. So you appear insincere. But when you have a pure heart, meaning you're not concerned about your own kingdom, but concerned about the kingdom of God, and you're concerned about the life of others, you can be sincere because you have nothing to hide anymore. So you let yourself be seen all out in the open. To be wise, you have to have Christ and realize he is the king, and then you start seeking his kingdom. And then that produces peace. Meaning, every, the wise person that I described earlier, that is someone who has found peace. That is someone who has found rest. That is someone who has found contentment in their life. Why are they so rested? It's not because they aren't ambitious. They are. They're just not ambitious about their own kingdom. Because when you're ambitious about your own kingdom, all you do is toil, like we said earlier. And you're terrified of losing everything that you have been building. You know that feeling. You put so much work into something and all of a sudden it's taken away from you. And when you build your own kingdom, it can happen like that. But when you seek to build the kingdom of God, you know you have him guarding his own kingdom. And every single little thing that you do that is done to build God's kingdom, it's eternal, it's everlasting. It will last beyond the shell of this earth, which means there is tons of purpose and meaning that can come flooding into your life, but also you can have rest and peace because you know he is guarding his own kingdom and it will not be taken down. So you can sit down at the end of the day and rest, knowing that it was a good day's work, You are ambitious for his kingdom, and now it's time to rest, and that's good. Now, let's keep going on this list of fruit who is a wise person. James says next that this person is open to reason. Now, what's that mean? Well, it means that they are steady in what they know to be true, yet they are humble, so that means that they know that they don't know everything. And so they're, they listen, they hear, they're, they're taking in information, they're watching the world and looking at what's happening. Now, we're not going to have time to cover everything on this list, but let, let, let me just play out a scenario 
that might make us a little uncomfortable, but that's a little fun to do. And it, it might show us some of the fruit of what it looks like to be wise. So you take a Christian Democrat and a Christian Republican. Ooh. And then you sit them down in a room and you let them talk some politics. Now, if they are unwise, here's how it plays out. If they're not open to reason, they say, I don't understand how this person could arrive at the stance that they arrive at. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying that. The problem is that at the end of the conversation, they still don't understand why that person who has a different stance than them has that stance. In other words, they didn't listen. They didn't want to know the reason why they took the stance that they took. And so the conversation goes on, and then it erupts in an argument because they don't get it. And then there's division, and then there's disorder, and then there are vile words spoken, and there you see, there you have it. All the things that James has just said is unwise has just happened between two people who are Christians, but were unwise. Now you take two wise Christians, sit them down, and here's what happens. They try to understand with sincerity why the person who believes differently than them or takes the stance different than them, why they believe that to be true, why they're taking that stance, why, they're, why, are they, why they are doing the thing that they're doing. It doesn't make any sense, but they listen. They want to understand. They might not agree with them at the end, but at least they've heard them and they've understood the logic of why they have come to the conclusion that they have come to. It was a friendly debate, and it doesn't leave them angry at each other, but they are still united in Christ. And they did this with peace, full of mercy. How's that happened? Well, I want to throw out an idea, see what you think about it. I want to throw this thought out that potentially, potentially, your political stance is more tied up with you trying to build your own kingdom than trying to build the kingdom of God up. And here's why I say that. Here's why I think people get so heated. Because, you know, we're desperate. We have this selfish ambition to build up our own kingdom. I do it. We all do it. Okay? So we chase after it. And then whatever political party best lines up with the kingdom we're trying to build, we say, this is the one. And then when somebody says something different than us, what are they doing? They're threatening our kingdom. And so we bow up and we fight. Unity in Christ is completely lost. You know, Paul, the writer of the most books in the Bible in the New Testament, you know the thing he always talks about is unity in the church. Unity, unity, unity. Every four years, I watch as the church in America becomes divided. I think we should run an experiment. The next time it's election season, we take two people who are so passionate on opposite sides of the aisle and we lock them in a room. And we say, you guys, figure this out. You talk until you understand each other and you can still have unity in Christ. And we look in and as soon as we see them glowing in wisdom, we open up the doors and we say, teach us. Teach us how to do this. Maybe we'll do that. It might be fun. All right, so now what is the result of this meekness of us seeking to bring our own kingdom? No, not bring our own kingdom, God's kingdom. 
It says that then there will be a harvest of righteousness where peace is sown by those who make peace. In other words, someone has a pure heart and they're sincere and they really want to see God's kingdom come. They want to see the goodness of his kingdom, his righteousness come, and so they seek it. And then it says what? The peace will come, meaning the kingdom will come. In other words, when you seek God's kingdom, he promises it will come. Little bit by little bit. And when it doesn't, the reason is simply this. We are seeking our own kingdom. If you seek to build God's kingdom, it will come. The problem I see is that most of us, we're just obsessed with our own kingdom. And we say we want God's kingdom to come, but what we really mean is we want our own version of God's kingdom to come, which is not really God's kingdom, it's our own. We're just masking it, saying, God, bring your kingdom. But we're praying for him to give us things that have nothing to do with his kingdom. If we're wise, we'll hear this and admit we've all got a bit of selfish ambition that has been masked with us seeking God's kingdom. So now, the only way to be wise left is to say to God, God, I have done this and I'm sorry. And then what we realize is that if we want wisdom, we need him. We're too obsessed. We're too rooted into our own kingdom. And so what does he do? He cracks open the shell of this earth and he comes in. And he brings wisdom. He himself is wisdom. And to grasp hold of him and to follow him everywhere he goes is the wisest thing you can do in your life. And what you're going to find is that by doing that, you're going to at times look a little bit foolish to the world. Let me read something to you. It's from 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart them. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now listen to this. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God showed, chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring about things that are so that no human might boast in the presence of God. Humility, meekness, right before God. In his infinite wisdom, he chose the folly of the cross. And Peter, in his earthly wisdom, said, no, don't do it. And in God's infinite wisdom... He did it. He chose the cross. He tricked the wisdom of the world into killing him. And he knew the wisdom of the world would do it. And he let it happen. Also, he might save the hands of the foolish ones who killed him. If God would have had earthly wisdom, Jesus would never have come for us. But that's not what he did. He came 
and there, in the foolishness of his death, he sparked a new life. And he cracked open the shell of death and he came up out of it. And when we take hold of him in the resurrection, he lifts us up out of this earthly wisdom into the wisdom that's from above. And when you realize that he has done that for you, you know what you do? You take your cheap plastic crown and you throw it right to the ground and you crush it right under your feet. And you crown him as your king and you seek his kingdom. It will be the wisest thing you ever do. Let's pray. Father, give us the wisdom that is from above. Humble us to our core. Let us see your glory, beauty, and worth. Let us see the wonder of the cross and the magnificence of the resurrection and let it make us bow to our knees and worship you. And there in the midst of worship, there as our hearts have been humbled, we then crown you as our king and in meekness now seek your kingdom. God, help us to stop playing around in mud puddles trying to build our own kingdom and to cross over on the other side of the hill and see the ocean that we could swim in that is your kingdom. Help us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.